Welcome to another edition of the Beervana Podcast, Jeff. Hello, Patrick. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Today we have a special edition of the Beervana Podcast, which is in fact not about beer. Ah, yes. So today we're going to talk about uh, cider. Uh, with me, of course, as always, is uh, Jeff Allworth, who is the author of uh, the Beer Bible, but is also the author of the book Cider Made Simple uh, from Chronicle Books. Yes, that's fine. <laughs> I don't have some in front of me. Uh, and tonight, by the way, if you're if you're listening to this podcast, the moment we post it, and you have you probably have about an hour or two to get to Reverend Nat's cider for the official book launch. Correct? That is correct. We'll be doing that at six o'clock at Reverend Nat's. It's going to be a pretty special night. So if you are uh, at all interested, uh, you should come down because I'll be talking a little bit about the book. But we will also have, uh, in addition to Reverend Nat, we will have Kevin Zelinsky. Uh, Abram Goldman Armstrong and uh, Silas Bleakley from uh, area uh, cideries, and they mm -hmm. will have some ciders along, and they will be talking about their ciders with me, and that's a lot of talent in one room and a lot of great cider. So definitely come by if you want to do that, and you can also pick up a book if you're interested. It'll be a cider summit. It, now, this is very interesting to me yeah. because uh, tonight also uh, for local people is uh, the playoff game with the Portland Timbers, and Abram Goldman Armstrong is also one of the biggest Timber Army guys around. So I know he's got to be conflicted. I, I wonder. Are you? You have season tickets. Are you? I, gonna I am the going game? to the game tonight. And when is the when's Which is why I'm not going to be at your cider event. That's but that's okay because I'm potting with you about it now. That, that's right. When is the kickoff? Uh, seven. Yeah. So maybe we'll try to speak fast, and if Abe needs to get out of there, we can let him talk and and get on the road. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine. Uh, for those of you out of town, Abe is sort of a local celebrity, both as a beer and cider person, but also as uh, one of the sort of, um, how would we say, most photogenic of the Timbers Army leadership and uh, has been featured on big giant billboards and banners around town. So, yes. uh, okay, so uh, as I was saying, uh, Jeff is also the author of the Beer uh, Vana uh, blog and uh, maintains a Facebook page as well called uh, Beer Vana Blog, uh, the Beer Vana Blog Facebook page, I guess. Right, <laughs> which is very graceful. Uh, and you are Patrick Emerson, uh, a professor of economics at Oregon State University and a fellow uh, at various institutions, which I learned last time we uh, podded, included uh, one in Bonn, Germany, as well as uh, one in uh, Sao Paulo. Is that oh, correct? That's right, I'm a research fellow at uh, the IZA, which is a uh, Institute for Research in Labor Markets uh, in Germany, as well as C-Micro at the Studio Fargas Foundation in Sao Paulo. <laughs> so, Excellent. Uh, has a little to do. So uh, when we uh, were doing the little jaunt to England uh, for uh, when you were doing research for the Beer Bible, uh, one thing struck me, uh, which was when we went to just about, uh, no, I want to say just about, every single pub we visited, uh, had plenty of beer taps, but also always had at least one cider tap. Right. And in fact, uh, cider was very commonly uh, ordered and, and drunk. And and not only is was there cider taps, but also sort of the same kind of macro cider as there is macro beer. Strongbow was the one I remember most. Basically, everywhere we went, there'd be some kind of strongbow tap, mm -hmm. um, as well as what you might call artisanal or craft cider as well. Um, until that point, I hadn't really thought much about cider, and I certainly hadn't thought about it as sort of a typical pub drink. In the preceding, or in the following uh, couple of years, uh, cider has taken over Portland and Oregon 
and right. it is virtually impossible to go to any bar restaurant here and not have at least one or two cider options alongside the craft beer. So uh, you have uh, struck while the iron is hot, I think. Um, cider is making a, a huge uh, foray into the American market. And so today we're going to talk about cider. Yes, let's do uh, let's let's do something kind of similar like we did with the German beer thing and, and talk about what cider is and, and what to look for. And I'm a perfect foil because I know absolutely nothing about cider. You have told me a few things here and there in the last year or two. I've um, had almost no cider. Uh, I enjoy it. It's just not something that has yet sort of uh, made its way into my normal repertoire. So right. um, I'm quite looking forward to this because uh, I expect to learn a lot. Cool. Well, uh, I will do my best to uh, tell you what I know and, and anybody who happens to be listening. Great. So uh, how do you want to structure this, say? Well, let's start out with uh, some basics about what cider is and why it's made out of apples. And uh, when you buy a, a cider, what you can expect uh, in that cider and maybe a few like common things about cider. Okay, that sounds good. Before we even begin, I want to I wanna just get one little thing out of the way, which is I buy cider for my kids. Uh, is there a naming convention? Um, there's hard cider, of course, is what we call it in the U.S., but... Uh, in other parts of the world, cider is assumed alcoholic. Is that right? Yes, that is right. Um, the the fact that we call hard cider, uh, we call it hard cider and, and not just cider, mm -hmm. is uh, an artifact of prohibition and unique to the United States. Um, everywhere else, when you say the word cider or seed or sidra, depending on where you are, you're talking about f uh, the fermented stuff. And the, the reason for that is because... Uh, Apple juice wants to be cider, and mm -hmm. if you don't do anything to apple juice, it will become cider. <laughs> that's right. As, as, <laughs> as you might know from leaving apple juice a little bit too long in the fridge. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what's happening. It's beginning to ferment. Um, and during Prohibition, uh, to keep uh, selling their, their juice, um, cider makers, especially in the Northeast, sold sweet cider, and that people developed a flavor for that, and then that became the default. And then when hard cider came back around, we had to call it something else. We call it hard cider. I personally wish we would uh, call, flip that. Cider should be, and I will refer to cider as, as the stuff that's fermented. Right. And if you want to talk about the other stuff, you can call that sweet cider or you can call it juice, which is what it's called in the industry. Okay, good. So we have that out of the way. So when we say apple cider, we're talking about the uh, fermented version. Yes. Uh, okay, I'm going to also... Uh, uh, Derail us before we even get started. A couple of other things, which is um, why app why is is apple juice unique um, in its ability to uh, ferment and ferment well, or uh, could you make uh, a fermented uh, beverage uh, out of um, similar fruits? This is uh, not a cul-de-sac, but the highway. Excellent. We're right. We've we're merging onto the highway of uh, information here. All right. Let's yeah, go. you can. Um, any any juice will ferment. Um, and it will all ferment naturally because yeast is everywhere. But there are not so many fruits that uh, create something that is uh, complex and aesthetically appealing. Mm -hmm. um, we know about wine, mm -hmm. so grapes do it. Uh, and we know about cider, uh, so apples do it. And actually, there's a product called Perry or Poiré in French, mm -hmm. which uh, is, done from, is made from pears. And what these three uh, fruits have in common... Uh, an advantage they have over other fruits is that uh, they have uh, different constituents in them that create a balanced and complex beverage that we enjoy. And this is this is true for all three of these. Uh, but since we're talking about cider, we'll focus in on on apples here. Um, first of all, they they have they have sugars. They ferment, so mm -hmm. there's um, there's a sweet quality. Mm -hmm. Sweetness is is one 
feature. Uh, acidity is a really important feature, and we know about this in, in uh, wine grapes, and it's also really important in ciders. Um, and it comes from uh, generally malic acid, mm -hmm. which is a, 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 a element that you have in apples. Um, is that what causes the tartness in tart apples? Exactly. So like Granny Smith, that's mm -hmm. got a lot of malic acid. Um, and there are many, many different kinds of uh, apples that have those uh, acids in them. And the third thing is a, an element called tannins, which you may have heard about if you think if you've heard people talk about wines. Yep. But it's kind of a thing that I didn't really know that well. I didn't really understand what it was until I got into uh, cider and, and started learning more about cider. Tannin is a some kind of chemical compound, uh, and I, I don't know what variety. It's like a polypeptide or something, <laughs> polyphenol or something. I can't believe you don't know that. Polysaccharide, <laughs> I don't know. It's probably, it's probably a poly something. Uh, and what it does is it actually creates more of a sensation than a flavor. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit bitter, so there is a little bit of a flavor, but it's a, a, a drying sensation. Right. And um, it, it can be associated with um, uh, some kind of hard, uh, like nutty flavors, um, uh, but mostly it's a drying sensation, and it and it helps cr give uh, uh, depth and character to uh, a beverage. Right. And uh, in in cider making, there are literally thousands of different um, apples that have been used to make cider, and each apple will have some combination of these things or lack of them. And when you make an, uh, uh, a cider, unlike uh, wine, where oftentimes we focus on single varietals, mm -hmm. it's actually better to have a blend of a lot of different kinds of apples, because then you make sure that you have uh, all these different flavor elements. Right. Um, and these are, don't, especially tannins, don't often appear in eating apples. So one of the things you hear a lot about is cider apples, mm -hmm. uh, which we don't in the United States have so many of, um, because we pulled them all out or they all died um, after cider making kind of fell out of favor Pro in the during last prohibition century. times. It was uh, even before prohibition in the yeah. 19th century. It's it's a very difficult uh, product to scale up. Unlike beer, yeah. you can't just build a bigger facility because right. you got to have you got to have trees and and processing is a pain in the butt. So it didn't scale well in the industrial era, mm -hmm. and it and it kind of uh, couldn't compete with beer. And that was also at the same time that all the Germans were coming and people were switching to beer. So Interesting. that's when um, in the United States we sort of went away from ciders. Yeah, so I can imagine during uh, the early 19th century, perhaps sort of farm farmsteads would be able to produce their own cider from their own trees. Yes, uh, and it was a huge part of uh, colonial um, uh, the the colonial period in the United States, and and there's a, a kind of a famous apple here called the Roxbury Russet, mm -hmm. which dates to 1620, I think, something like that, wow. um, which demonstrates how quickly the settlers wanted to get these trees in and get get them, get them cider going because yeah. it was the thing that they could do. Beer was much more difficult. Barley was hard to grow. Hops were hard to grow. Yeah, and I imagine cider making at that time, well, still is, but cider making at that time was probably extremely prevalent in, in England where they were. That's right. From whence they came. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I'll uh, uh, jump a little bit just because you were talking about the different uh, compounds and flavor characteristics, one of the reasons I think that I've not really um, uh, been drawn to cider, uh, and hopefully that will change after today, is um, my my impression, my stereotype perhaps, of what an apple alcoholic beverage would be like. Mm -hmm. One is probably sweet, which mm -hmm. I wouldn't like, and two, probably really uh, one-dimensional, just yeah. kind of like 
you know what you get when <laughs> when you leave the apple juice too long. Um, but I'm gathering that uh, there's there's um, with the right apples and the right flavor compounds, you can actually make quite a complex beverage. That's right, and uh, and unfortunately, uh, if you go down to the grocery store and buy a commercial cider product, mm -hmm. you might find something very close to what you described. And uh, there, this is an important thing for us to to note right here at the outset that the the things that we're going to be talking about today are what we would consider traditional craft ciders, not industrial ciders. Mm -hmm. In the United States, this is an interesting thing. When I started learning about cider that I did not realize, uh, we always disparage industrial products, mm. um, whether we're talking about wine or, or beer or cheese or food or anything. And that is true with cider, but there is a really important distinction between cider and beer and wine. If you're making cheap beer, uh, it's 100% beer. Right. If you're making cheap wine, it's... 100% wine, there's a, there is a thing called chapitalizing, so it is possible to add a little sugar and, and stuff, but right. basically it's it's 100% wine. When you're talking industrial uh, uh, cider, mm -hmm. it has to, it, by law, only has to be 50% apples. <laughs> it, the rest can be a blend of sugar water and flavorings, uh, malic acid. There's a thing that they do where they, uh, they uh, do a distillate of the aroma of apples <laughs> and they put that in there and if you open many industrial ciders they right. smell like jolly rancher it fills the room right that is not a an aroma that is native to ferment fermented apples right so the all these all these things if you and you can really tell if like i i think one of the better examples of uh an in, uh, industrial cider is angry orchard and it's fairly palatable and i don't want to get into the, the business here of, of talking anybody down. But it's interesting, if you look at Angry Orchard's line, all the all their products are basically the same. I think they're around 5.2% alcohol. Uh -huh. That is a real tip-off. Because if you're dealing with uh, a, a product that comes from the ground, right. every year it's going to have different bricks, different sugar content, right. and it will have a variable, you know, it would have a variable thing. If it's kind of impossible to always hit uh exactly the same amount. So that's one key, this, the aroma of Jolly Rancher and the flavor of Jolly Rancher. These are other keys that you're not dealing with. Uh, yeah, big business here. doesn't like variation. No, no. That's right. That's right. You want the same product delivered the same way again and again and again. And if you like those, you're probably not the person, kind of person who's listening to a podcast about beer. <laughs> and if you're listening to a podcast about beer, you are probably interested in knowing, like you, are some of these other products uh, complex and interesting and, and would they be appealing to people like uh, like us who like good beer? And I, I think the answer is yes. And to demonstrate that, um, one, uh, one there's a few things to kind of uh, give, give form to the cider world. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of them is uh, national tradition. So there are three countries that, are, that have a national cider tradition that are really important. Okay. England, France, and Spain. Right. And we have uh, English, French, and Spanish ciders here in front of us. Yeah, looking forward to it. And they are all different. So wh why don't we, we can continue to have this discussion about what cider is. Um, but let's pour one of these out. Uh, let's start with England. Um, since England's cider tradition begat America's. Yeah, I was about to say, very similar to sort of craft beer. Yeah. Where we glommed onto the English tradition first and now are sort of spreading out. But... Uh, the ciders, the kind of craft ciders that you're likely to find uh, produced in the U.S. are going to be sort of in the English tradition? We will come around to that. Okay. Um, they are in the English tradition in the same way that uh, American IPAs right. are in the English tradition. Right. Um, we have we have gone a little bit further. Taking the blueprint and kind of gone crazy. Yeah. Uh, English ciders, 
I'm going to pour out, we have a Henny's here, uh, okay. which is from Herefordshire, which is the main si main apple growing region in uh, England, even though many people think of Somerset when they think of uh, uh, rustic ciders. Herefordshire is actually the, uh, it's like the Iowa of apples in, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, you know, I, as, as Iowa is to corn in the United States, Herefordshire is to apples in uh, the UK. Right. Um, and we will give this a go. A um, one thing that characterizes uh, English ciders is that they are. Uh, oh, and this was this is going to be still. So when I do this, yeah, we, will was... hear, we will hear nothing. <laughs> oh, it wasn't entirely still. Well, you hear this. There was a little. Uh, I think that that's actually interesting. That means that it, it's continued to ferment a little. Okay, bit. so still cider. Hold on. It ferments, uh, but it ferments out. Right. So there's no residual fermentation that happens in the bottle and therefore all the carbon dioxide is released right okay it's it's like wine um we're always uh, i think people in the united states uh expect cider to be uh carbonated because yep, i do yeah that's and that's how not. it is <laughs> that is that looks just like apple juice yep but we would not expect uh wine to be carbonated and when wine is carbonated it's kind of unusual and weird so yeah. um that's interesting uh so this cider yeah Let's let's talk for a minute about your uh, what you just said is an important okay. important uh, concept to understand. Cider will ferment to dry uh, if if let on it just let let to its own devices and not tinkered with. Right. And you, when you look at a cider, uh, it will often say something like semi-dry, off-dry, sweet, mm -hmm. medium. So the question arises how is it possible to get sugar have sweetness in a cider if it all ferments out and the way they do this is they back sweeten it so the mm. a term of art typically uh there are a couple of ways to do this but the uh, the most common way is you ferment to dry mm -hmm. pasteurize the cider and add sugar back in Add sugar or add apple juice you can add apple juice it's actually more common to add sugar okay yeah, yeah because then you don't mess with the flavor huh yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, and also, y fresh juice tastes as uh, you'll uh, see when you encounter uh, when you try this this cider. Fresh juice tastes a lot different than cider in the same mm -hmm. way that apple or grape juice doesn't taste anything like wine. Yeah. So this, by the way, uh, this uh, henny still cider that we've got right now, the ingredients listed are fermented apple juice, water, sugar, and malic acid. So, in fact, it isn't just the pure fermented apple juice. Yeah. I. I noticed that Henny's adds, adds malic acid, which totally blows my mind, because nobody else does that. It doesn't taste that way. Oh, so that's interesting. My first, I'm, I'm, I'm smelling it, and the first impression I get is almost a wine impression that you get the alcohol in the nose. Yeah. Which is quite startling, since I look at it and my brain says apple juice. Right. It does. It will not have those bright, fresh flavors because what happens in the process of fermentation, of course, is uh, all those flavors transform. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a in a cider like this, um, the the English tradition, um, there there are four different kinds categories of apples, mm -hmm. sweet sweet apples, which basically just are good for sugar, right? Uh, and uh, sharps, which are like Granny Smiths, they're right. full of uh, uh, acid. And then there's the bitter apples, and they can either be bitter sweet or bitter sharp, mm -hmm. and they are the ones with tannins, right? And in England. Um, they don't use very much acid fruit at all. They mm -hmm. use a lot of these uh, bitter sweets. Right. Um, so they pump up the, the sugar, and then they have very strong tannins. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I've had a sip 
it's very, very dry mm -hmm. on the tongue, very reminiscent of wine in that way. Um, do you feel the drying? Yes, that's, I definitely do. That's a nice thick tannin mm -hmm. whack. One and one reason in a in a cider like this, it's very yeah, the tannin level seems very similar to wine to me. It's very yeah, same kind of dry, right? Snap on the tongue. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And one reason to add sugar back in a in a cider like this is that uh, once it goes to dry, those tannins can get really rocky. Yeah. Because they don't have any any. There's no mouthfeel, no sugar to offset them. So yeah. it's just. Uh, this had sugar added, but it is not at all sweet. Right. I mean, there's just enough sugar to kind of offset. Yeah. Most most uh, Americans would consider this pretty dry. Yeah. Uh, I it's don't really not much sweeter than uh, than a glass of white wine. No. Um, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a nice dry. Mm -hmm. This is a classic, uh, English product. Uh, and typically this is going to be true of all these three countries. These will be produced through, uh, what, what is known as natural, uh, fermentation mm -hmm. or wild. Right. So they don't add yeast. Um, it is typical in all three of these countries to have the cider being made at the farm. So basically, when I was in Europe writing this book, I was just talking to farmers right. who happen to also uh, make make cider right. from from their uh, from part of their produce. And they had in in England they have sheep underneath grazing in the in the orchards, mm -hmm. and in uh, France, oh, and also in Spain, and in France they have cows. And this is a great way to get two crops out of one piece of land mm -hmm. because uh, you know you have you have the that nice lawn underneath those trees so you can put produce or you can put uh, cattle or sheep out there and then they help fertilize the ground which works really nice they clip the grass so you don't have to have a you don't have to bring a lawnmower out there and actually uh, one thing that they've discovered even though it means that they get fewer pounds per acre uh, having uh, they have to have the trees up high enough so that the livestock don't eat the apples off the tree right and that opens the trees up. And apparently, according to uh, what Mike Johnson at the Ross on Y uh, cidery in, in Herefordshire, what he told me was that means that there's more airflow through there. And he has way less problems with uh, blight and, mm. and pests and that kind of stuff. Right. So right. all of this is sort of a, an organic process of, of making cider. And, and they, um, so they, they harvest the apples in the fall and press them and, and, leave them in big tanks and basically don't do anything. They Once they press the juice, um, the, the work is done and the nature takes its course. Right. And so if you if you took the same juice uh, and uh, left it out in different parts of the, the world, I imagine you, you'd be getting different flavors from the yeast, or are the yeast f a fairly common species across all areas? No, you totally get a different flavor. And um, when we get to the, uh, the Spanish cider, you're going to see how that plays out in a really particular way um it's uh the the yeast the yeast has a strong influence um the cider that we have the french style cider that we have here the example of french style cider is actually uh comes from from oregon from kevin Zelinsky. but um if you buy the french ciders in that and you can get these in america and they're actually really cheap which is very uh, nice a, a nice french cider only set you back about ten bucks or less. Mm -hmm. um, these things are amazing. They have a, an almost blue cheese-like quality that comes from the natural fermentation, and it seems extremely French. It that that quality it right. reminds you really of the 
of the of a it seems like a, a French blue cheese. Or, yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, cam and 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 where they're well, I'm jumping ahead, but um, actually one thing that I learned is uh, all of the places that I went where they made cider, they also made cheese. When I went down to Somerset, I passed through the village of Cheddar, which mm -hmm. is in the state of Somerset, and um, so yes, cheese and and cider go together, and and uh, the organisms that make them are just are like cheddar cheese and apple pie. Yes, that's, that's my right. Canadian relatives used to make all the time. Uh, let me just finish up the impressions of this particular English cider. Um, it it definitely looks like sort of a a filtered apple juice, uh, light um, uh, yellow amber. Uh, very familiar apple juice color. It's a 6.5. I just looked at the bottle. 6.5% ABV, so it's not nearly as um, alcoholic as sort of a glass of white wine. It has that, right. that tannic quality, a little bit of that uh, alcohol in the nose quality, but the apple definitely comes through. It comes through very clean. Yeah, this not at all overpowering. A very subtle apple flavor. It's really actually quite quaffable relative to wine, of course, because it's only half the strength. Um, and quite quite delightful. It, they are wonderful. I really love English ciders. Um, I think I found that most most Americans, it's not really in their palate. The mm -hmm. the tannins are a little bit too sharp. Um, one thing that I, I think is really an important feature of of uh, English ciders is the uh, aromatics, which are so particular. And I spent um, I when I was visiting uh, Mike Johnson at Ross on Y, mm -hmm. he is in a seven uh, an 18th century farmhouse there where his, his cidery is. Mm -hmm. And in the basement of the, in the, underneath the house is the cellar where we, we he has his cider uh, and then his cidery is in the barn outside. Mm -hmm. And we sat in his uh, tasting room and drank a bunch of cider over the course of an evening, which was really nice because then all I had to do was stumble up <laughs> to my room. Uh, and somehow this aroma just permeated everything. The smell. Mm. It is the smell to me of English cider. Of English cider and English. And if it smells like a farm, it smells. It smells damp and wholesome and uh, like the the forest. The a cider, an orchard floor. Yeah. Mm. It just is wonderful. So probably um, one of the reasons I love that cider so well is that uh, it reminds me of of uh, of, of Herefordshire. Your journey. Yeah. So how. Uh, how much of English cider is still relative to uh, bubbly? Very little. Uh, the same thing has happened you know, in the UK that's happened in the United States where palates have shifted and mm -hmm. people like much sweeter ciders. They like Roiling, uh, uh, effervescent ciders. There's actually, at some point, we might want to do a, uh, a pod on the economics of cider because it's super fascinating. <laughs> and how, how cider came to be, a, came to... Uh, show up in beer bars. Mm -hmm. It has a lot to do with the direction that cider took, and actually, it inflected the way cider developed in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a, a period of time where cider makers threw in with pub owners, and it changed cider a lot, uh. Uh, and it, it made them be perceived less as a wine and more as a beer. Right in that category. And so they verged more. They sort of become more and more beer-like. Yes. In their presentation. So they have a little lower alcohol, uh, effervescent on tap. Yeah, that stuff. Yeah, that was funny because when we were in England and people were ordering Strongbow and they would they would uh, uh, serve the glass. It's very hard to tell the person's drinking Strongbow cider versus whatever, you know, uh, um, uh, beer, you know, macro brew um, that they would typically drink. Yeah. 
One other thing I should point out while we have this here is this color, we will see when we get to the uh, Spanish cider, uh, is, it's much paler. Dark tannins uh, have uh, color. So mm. when you look at a cider, if it's a, if it's a deeper color, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, unless it comes from, there are some, some cider, some apples that actually have flesh, colored flesh, like red flesh. Right. It's one called a red field apple that's grown here in the United States. Aside from those things, uh, when you see when you see a deeper color, you're probably dealing with a tannic cider, and that's the case here. Okay. So we're seeing uh, some nice color here, and it, that's a, a clue. Yeah. It's a clue to the uh, to the tannins that you're about oh, to get taste. Okay. Yeah. Good. So let's move to uh, France. Oh, okay. actually, let's not move to France. Let's talk about uh, a little bit um, the the long history. When people think of French, or when people think of English cider, they mm-hmm. often think about this word scrumpy. You may have heard this word scrumpy. You may have seen it. There are a few ciders in America that have uh, uh, scrumpy uh-huh. uh, attached to it. And it when people talk about English cider, they often use the word scrumpy. Uh, and I didn't, I wasn't totally clear on what it was. And so when I was in uh, Herefordshire, uh-huh. I asked Tom Oliver what that meant. Tom Oliver is one of the best cider makers in England. Um, and he also makes probably the most well-regarded Perry in England. Mm-hmm. I, I thought his Perry was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent some time with Tom, and he's a cool guy. And uh, then I asked him what uh, Scrumpy was, and he had a cool answer. So I thought we'd play that. So if you encounter this word, you'll have a sense of, of what that means. From whence he comes. Okay, yeah. we'll play it now. Will you describe Scrumpy for an American audience? I know it's a hard one. Uh, <laughs> it, because people come here and they say, have you got any scrumpy? <laughs> As if that's the elixir of life or, or the holy grail or something. Um, and, and when you ask them, you know, what's scrumpy? They go, whoa, whoa. So I'll suggest that scrumpy is uh, something uh, that traditionally in the West Country was slightly uh, maybe acetic and robust full-bodied cider. Okay. Uh, but I think now uh, acetic is, is getting tougher for people generally to appreciate. Um, the old boys as in 70-plus years old, they love a bit of something that burns on the way down. Uh-huh. But nowadays, <laughs> most people don't. Really. So my, my version of Scrumpy it, it suggestion would be that it's, uh, it's, it's probably got a reasonable sweetness, back sweetness, uh, to it, um, uh, because that's generally what people can tolerate now, slightly sweeter than it used to, uh, and it's probably cloudy. Okay. Uh, and the cloudiness is obtained either, either naturally or by adding back some yeast. Okay. From the from the lees, which is what we do. We've got a tub of uh, lees out there, and um, <laughs> every time we make a batch of scrumpy, in goes a liter of the cloudy stuff. And, and uh, you know, some people say, "Can can can we get it cloudier?" Well, yes. Can we get it less cloudy? Yes. So, uh, that's really. Cloudy. But that, that's 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 what we do. So cloudy. And I think uh, one thing to just tag on here that will probably be familiar to. You, to our listeners and to you is uh, what he's describing there is kind of an old rustic form of, of cider and uh, it's kind of similar to the the direction that, that beer has gone where mm-hmm. we've gone away from industrial so old things like saisons and farmhouse beers right. have become attractive to people in the same way that old farmhouse ciders have become attractive to people. So and that, so scrumpy sort of a, a, a term that people connote with sort of old farmhouse ciders yeah exactly and i think they were probably not uh so great back in the day i think they were probably a little (laughs) rugged and not maybe 
fermented as refined as yeah. clean as the kind of stuff that you'd make on your own in yeah. your own barn on your off time but yeah um and when when tom was talking about that he makes a, a thing called posh scrumpy which ah, is pretty funny great. yeah it's very nice and it's uh, a little higher quality scrumpy <laughs> than uh, than you would expect with the acetic acid as he said which is of course the vinegar flavor that uh yeah. all right well why don't we move on to our next region of uh yeah cider making so where are we going go to go? We're going to go to we're going to go to Normandy now. Okay. And uh, b- by way of uh, the Willamette Valley, this is actually uh, a Norman cider made here in the United States. Yeah. Um, this one. I actually have we have um, we have some close friends who are French and who um, live in Paris, but have a family uh, house in Normandy and some relatives there. And whenever we visit the relatives, they always bring out the Calvados. Right. Uh, so apples are clearly, which is apple liqueur. Uh, so apples are clearly a big deal in Normandy, um, and making alcoholic stuff out of apples is oh. So this is just worlds different from what we just had. Yes, French cider is. Uh, it, there's a way in which uh, English cider is very straightforward and kind of honest in its way. It's mm-hmm. just not fuss. You don't fuss with it at all. Um, and it, you know, you you take it out of the orchard, you press it, you put it in the barn, and you wait, and then you get you get what you get. Mm-hmm. Unsurprisingly, the French don't leave it at that. <laughs> they they take things to greater heights. Uh, and w- one of the things that they do is this process called keeving, um, which allows them. So, have you tasted that this this cider yet? Not yet. No. Nope. Uh, this is the one way it's possible to. Leave sugar in. Uh, <laughs> just dump my nose in it. Oops. I was trying to get a really good. Well, now I know it's my Yes. Place. Well, there you go. Uh, yeah. Taking, getting your nose in there too literally. No. One, there is, there is a way to leave sugar in a cider without back sweetening, uh-huh. and the French have actually. It, it's possible that the, the the British were the ones to figure this out, mm-hmm. uh, but it per, but the but the technique. Mainly is now used in in uh, in France, mm-hmm. and it is uh, universal in both Norman and Breton wine. So the other place where they are uh, uh, ciders, the other place where they make ciders is in Brittany, mm-hmm. uh, which is close to uh, Normandy. In fact, this is an interesting thing. If you look at a map, um, uh, Herefordshire and Somerset are near the sea. Right. Uh, they have temperate climates, but pretty chilly climates. Mm-hmm. Uh, Normandy and and Brittany, also near the sea, mm-hmm. have uh, temperate but chilly climates. Mm-hmm. Both of those places are quite wet. And then when we get to Spain, uh, I didn't I didn't realize, but there's a place called the uh, uh, Verde España mm-hmm. or España Verde. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the green, green part. <laughs> the green, yeah, the green Spain, which is a band running on the very northern part where mm-hmm. uh, it is uh, again on the sea, and uh, it is it's super wet there. In fact. Uh, the Basque country, the, the city of San Sebastian, which mm-hmm. is right in the heart of uh, the cider country, is gets more water a year than uh, New Orleans. So wow. there are places in Spain that are super wet, and it was it, it was like living in a shower when we were there. Right. We visited in uh, in January, and mm-hmm. it was just gushing. <laughs> and as it happens, the weather in those three places looks almost identical to the weather in Oregon. So I know we have people who don't live in Oregon, but um, I would look at my my uh, uh, my weather app, and it would say it was 42 and raining in in uh, you know in, 
in Herefordshire, and it would be 42 and raining in Portland. Right. That was just down the line. It was always the same thing. It was, it was pretty funny. Um, so anyway, back to uh, French cider. So the, f- the French do a cool thing, and this is actually uh, beer people will really appreciate this mm-hmm. uh, because this, this kind of bent my mind. Um, <laughs> there are, you know, with beer, the sugars are, uh, there, are, there are certain sugars that are in beer that are unfermentable. Right. And the yeast just can't eat them. Right. Um, so that's how you leave residual sugar in beer. Right. And if you approach, uh, if you use that approach with cider, you'll always fail. So the, f- the French uh, and English before them did something different. They figured out a way to starve the yeast mm-hmm. of nutrients, which is this other thing that we never think about in beer because beer is so full of nutrients you can't, you can't get rid of it. Right. Uh, and if you starve the yeast of, of nutrients, then they'll be floating around kind of tired and sluggish in a really uh, sugary solution and they won't be able to eat it because right. they're just all, they're well, all out of gas. Fascinating. So how do they do that? Well, why don't we turn to uh, Guillaume Druon who will describe uh, part of the process and then I will uh, I'll add a little bit more to that. Um, this is a process called keeving. Um, in French, the word is defecation, which is an unfortunate name. So we, <laughs> we, we say keeving. Uh, and this is a uh, cider maker in Normandy who also does Calvados. Actually, this is a, a company that is much more famous for its Calvados. It was originally a Calvados producer mm. when his grandfather founded it. Um, he went off to learn about winemaking, and, uh, and he decided to come back to the family and when he came back to the family, he was very interested in uh, cider making. Uh-huh. And he, so he has now been rehabilitating uh, Drawn's cider side. Right. Um, the way that you make Calvados is you uh, distill cider. Right. So they would, they'd always made cider, but only for distillation. And, and now he is much more interested in, uh, or he is equally interested in this, the cider side. So he took me to his cidery and described this process. So let's listen to what he has to say. All right. You got the juice at eight degree, and you're gonna wait for about one week. Okay. During that week, that's the time for the fermentation to start, because it's eight, it's low. And what is going to happen is, as soon as the fermentation starts, the bubbles will start to uh, appear, develop, go to the top of the tank, mm-hmm. and doing that, they will bring with them all the pectins, mm-hmm. and the pectins uh, conglomerate together. Mm-hmm and this make a kind of heavy, uh, solid uh, thing that goes to the top of okay. the tank, which we call chapeau brun, brown hat. Brown hat. And this is something very important because I would say more or less you have like 12 hours, maybe 24 really maximum to do this racking properly. Uh, because if you do it too early, the hat is not completed mm-hmm. and you will still have a lot of pectin left in your cider which is not good okay but if you wait too long the hat fall down in the tank too late okay. you forget this is not made for bottling cider anymore okay so uh one thing that that uh happens before this is a process called maceration mm-hmm. uh which after you uh, uh grind the the fruit, uh, but before you press it, so it's pulp like it looks right. like a uh, applesauce. Right. If you let it sit. By the way, do they is that with skin or without? 
with with skin, whole apples. The whole apples go in. They don't core them. Everything goes in, okay. and it's it's ground together, and it creates this pulp. Mm-hmm. If you let that pulp sit, um, uh, chemical reactions happen that will create the uh, circumstance that he describes later, where the pectin will separate out and go up. I see. That con that conglomeration he's describing uh, is full of nutrients. Right. So once uh, all the nutrients are taken into the, the into the brown hat, then at a certain point, they pull the juice out, which now has way less nutrients. Mm-hmm. And when they ferment that out, uh, and then we have to rack it a time or two, which is to say transfer it, because once the yeast goes through the, the process of budding out and, and growing so that it can ferment, um, that takes a lot of energy. So that's another way to exhaust the yeast. Once it goes through this process, um, they can they can select how sweet they want, bottle it, and they bottle condition, so they just bottle it while it's still fermenting, and it will it will uh, in the bottle it will continue to ferment and and bottle condition that way. So hold on, we're gonna go back for a second. So you all, you get the nutrients; they all rise to the top with the pectin in this big sort of foamy mass. I'm imagining, given my experience with beer, it's like it's hard though. It's a it's more like a mat. Wow. Yeah. And so you scrape that off. Yeah. And that starves the yeast of needed nutrients. Yeah. And essentially stops the fermentation process. It will it will cause the fermentation to stop prematurely. It okay. doesn't stop it then. But uh, ah, that was my okay. So that yeah. was my question. So it, it's it's going to stop. They've they've initiated the process by which it will stop. But it's still there's still enough fermentation that they can then put it in the bottle and get some extra uh, fermentation to to bottle condition. Right. Got it. Yeah. Guillaume joked that. Uh, I asked him how how he could tell that the the chapeau brune was was <laughs> ready, and he said, "Oh, I have a very technical piece of equipment. I go up there with a stick and I poke it." <laughs> uh, so that that's how they that's how they come up with this cider, and it and it and so it's served in a in a bottle with a cork, and when you pop it, it's very effervescent, uh, like champagne. They even use the method Chaponat sometimes, um, although sometimes the method Natural, mm-hmm. I think, is how you say it. With it, so they leave the, the they don't they don't disgorge before bottle or when they're in the bottling and and so that it still has yeast in it and you can tell in this one there's still yeast in it. It's still yeah. Cloudy. So let's talk about this one a little bit. There was there was a little bit of effervescence to begin with, but it quickly dissipated. Yeah, and that's that's uh, it will continue to build effervescence. Um, it is a, this is a really slow process, uh, and it can take a long time in the bottle, particularly because it's a little bit, you're not entirely sure. Uh, it, there's guesswork. Yeah. And and in um, the in France, I don't know that, that Kevin Zelensky does this, but in France they use slightly smaller uh, corks, mm-hmm. which they hold on with cages. Right. So if it is over carbonated, uh, it'll actually escape out through the uh, cork a little bit without exploding. I see. Um, well, that's clever. Yeah. Uh, so just to give you the impressions that th- this is a bit lighter than the the English cider that we had, um, it's more uh, uh, sort of blonde to straw color, um, and my impression relative on the nose relative to the English cider, which I sort of immediately thought of a bit of white wine, this one um, sort of reminds me more of uh, Belgian beer. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know? it's funkier. Yeah, and it's got some funk in it. It's it's got it sort of almost a little bit of that funky sour bit, yep. um, which actually I find <laughs> really delightful. I, I do uh, too. It really sort of hit me, it hit the pleasure zones immediately when I when I, um, when I I smelled it. Yeah. And on the tongue, it's not nearly as tannic. It's because it's much sweeter. It's sweeter. And that will, that balance will change as it, as it, 
uh, gets more oh, effervescent. Yeah, actually, so sensing the tannins now. Yeah. Because it's starting to dry on my tongue. Right. Oh, interesting. Um, as it dries in the bottle and gets more effervescent, the uh, tannins will appear more. You know, they'll they'll show themselves a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a cool thing that happens when you do this natural bottle conditioning over a long period of time is the and this has not uh, completed in this bottle mm-hmm. is the uh, carbon dioxide will become much more integrated into the into the solution of the cider. Mm-hmm. It creates a uh, a much thicker, silkier mouthfeel. Mm, it's um, very uh, kind of, yeah, silky. It's right. just very silky. And it will stay in solution. Instead of just springing out in those big bubbles, it will stay in solution. And when it does release its gas, there are little tiny bubbles that right. just kind of get squeezed out at the end. And, nice. um, yeah, I think it's a wonderful mm. style of wine, and it is wholly unique in the world. Yeah, I'm um, really enjoying this, uh, this cider. Yeah. Well, let's keep moving on. Uh, we have, speaking of unique, um, this is also, we're going to move to the Basque country now. This is so also just to, unique. just to give up, sorry, just a little cultural reference here. I think of cider in England as served in pubs next to beer. It's, it's consumed, I mean, obviously at home too, but I, but sort of um, consumed like, like beer in pubs. And mm-hmm. so sort of a pub drink, I guess, is what I'm getting at. And so in France, uh, is cider consumed widely throughout the country? Is it really so much, a, very much a regional drink? Totally regional. And yeah. in fact, wine is so big that in in Normandy, uh, you'll have some uh, wines on a even even when you're in a Norman restaurant, you'll have uh, wines available and, and along with cider. Mm, yeah. Well, the French are very funny about this stuff too. They're very much into tradition and and region. So. You know, you're supposed to have certain foods when you're, you know, in Lyon, and you're supposed to have other foods when you're in Normandy, and you know, and, and that's where you go have your calvados and your cider. Yeah. But if you're in Paris, no, 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 you don't. <laughs> right. Right. Why right. would you be having calvados in Paris? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah it's often the case that you get the prefix menu in in uh, in a, at a restaurant in Normandy, mm-hmm. and they'll give you an option of either cider or wine with the with right. the prefix. So, and I always go with the cider. Of so now we're moving down to to the Basque Country in Spain. Yes. Now amongst your people. Uh, it's true. Uh, I did not mention this in the book, but I was born uh, Jeffrey Gorstiza. My birth father uh, was Basque. So, um, yeah, these were my people. And I looked around to see if I saw anybody look like me. And I'm mostly still in that. So <laughs> they didn't. They're much, they're much uh, kind of shorter, stockier people. Ah, uh, but you felt it in the blood. No I question. did. So now this is the interesting thing. I'm going to try to do. Oh, I forgot this. Keep talking. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I will keep talking. Uh, what we are about to um, taste is the uh, Isastegi cider. And I'm looking um, here. I was looking at where, where, in fact, it's from. You're about, to, you're about to tell me precisely where it's from. All I saw was the Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I thought that's, uh, yes. that's the importer, of course. Uh, it is. Okay, so what you're putting in a, an interesting, in, interesting uh, thing in the top. So you've... You've uncorked it. I've uncorked with a, it with a uh, with a corkscrew, by the way, just yep. so that the listeners can can visualize. And now you have this thing that you've put in the opening. This is a uh, still cider, mm-hmm. and they're always served still. Mm-hmm. But uh, the both the Basques and the Asturians um, pour it in a particular way to do what they call breaking the cider, ah. which is to agitate it. Okay. And I'm probably gonna so sort of aerate it. I haven't done this in a while. Oh, so you're pouring it from a very high. And then you get ah. this foamy thing, and now you got to drink it quick. 
you usually pour like just a couple of fingers. I see. And uh, ooh, that's very dry. It's very dry and very tart. Yeah. This is uh, the classic presentation of both Asturian and Basque. Basque is a little bit funkier, and the Asturians would say more rustic and crude. Really, I gotta try. I have to try this this pouring technique. I'm gonna do it near the microphone, so it's gonna be harder. Nicely done. Like an old pro. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. That so it's it's quite effervescent when you do that. Right, and that's the that's the point is you you kind of create a mm -hmm. a sense of effervescence. Um, it, 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 they have these wonderful giant chestnut, uh, what we would in the beer world call fooders, but mm -hmm. big big wooden vats. And in the uh, cideries, you can go and they do the same thing, and they open. They open those up, and a little stream comes shooting out. You, you <laughs> nice. hold your glass, and you catch it that way. Nice. And in the Basque country, they have a thing called choch, uh, which is when the cider uh, comes online, and it starts in, in uh, January and usually goes until about Easter. Mm -hmm. And they serve big feasts, and you go to the cidery, and you have a big feast, and then periodically somebody will say, choch, and everybody in the cidery <laughs> runs over, and they do this thing, and they do it kind of a train as people go through. So this is probably the lightest of the mm -hmm. three uh, in terms of color. Um, it is still, but of course, with your little implementation, it gets quite effervescent. Um, and when it's effervescent, it's sort of dry, like a champagne is dry. I mean, it, it evokes, to me, it, it's evocative of champagne just because it's quite dry and there's some bubbles. It's cool when you do that, too. It gets milky and it, it, it looks, yeah, it looks kind of rustic that way. And then, uh, and then it, it clears up and it gets much yeah. paler. The little implement you put in the top is just a... A little, a little stopper that has a, a small, a smaller spout, so you can kind of get a, a thin stream that you're able to guide and pour more easily. Yeah, and it, it shoots it out the side easier. Right. Uh, in Astoria, they don't you they don't have this implement. This is a thing they only use in, in the Basque Country. Mm -hmm. I take it that there's quite a, a rivalry between the two regions. Um, when I, but of course, yes. When I, <laughs> <laughs> when I posted uh, uh, this on uh, Facebook, there's a a follower I have is a big cider fan. He's he's a, I think he's a story and he's Spanish anyway. Mm -hmm. And his name is Cider Gorilla on on <laughs> Facebook. And he um, he took uh, some exception to my fondness for the Basque cider, <laughs> which he considers a lesser product. So I think there is some rivalry there. Yeah, well, maybe we'll hear from Cider Gorilla after this. So one thing I really want to point out with with this as you taste this cider is. Um, also natural fermentation, mm -hmm. uh, most mostly in Europe, they love natural fermentation, mm -hmm. but you can really taste the, there's almost a brininess uh, to this that comes from the natural yeasts here. Yeah. They, they, they also use different kinds of uh, fruit in, in France, just like England, they use a lot of uh, bittersweets. In uh, Spain, they use many more acid uh, varieties of yeah. apples. Yeah, uh, I can taste that. It's... It's different. I mean, it's, yeah, I guess now that you mentioned it, that's exactly sort of how I would characterize it. It's much more sharp, acidy, yeah. acidic. Yeah. Not not as tannic, just acidic. Yeah. It's, it's um, the the acidic of, yeah, there's not so much tannins, and the acidity comes from both the natural fermentation and also the uh, the little sour apples they have there, mm. little tart apples. Mm. Um, and I think one thing that I... If, if you love this kind of cider, you you owe it to yourself to have it with a meal because the Basques always have it with a meal. I never saw a Basque just sit down with this bottle of cider. Mm, interesting. It is always with food. Uh, and in, in the Basque lands, they have really intense food. They have 
sharp, salty fish meals. Uh, at Choch, they do this thing where they have a basically raw steak that they bring out, and sometimes it's even salted a little bit, very bloody. Sometimes it's still mooing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Very, uh, uh, very from the farm. And this, these, in, they need. They need uh, food that will stand up to cider or cider that will stand up to this. Yeah, so let's food. talk about that a little bit, just in general, not not specific regionally. But what, what kinds of foods do you think pair well with cider? Well, one thing for sure that cheese. is... Cheese. Yeah, that. cheese is, is definitely top of the list. And um, some people know uh, the cheese bar here in town. I was asking the owner, Steve, one time, because he serves uh, beer, wine, and cider at the cheese bar. Mm-hmm. And I know that all three of these... You know, partisans of all three of these believe that their 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 fermented beverage goes best with cheese. Yeah. So I asked him as a nonpartisan. But cheese is so different. So. Yeah, yeah, it's true. There's a lot of things. So I thought, you know, you're a cheese guy. You're not a beer guy or a wine guy or a cider guy. What do you think? And he said, cider. It goes best with cider. I think cheese is. See, I like I like you know with beer. I often like um, the you know get a hunk of Parmesan cheese, for example. Uh, sometimes, sometimes like a blue cheese. Like with an IPA, um, I like that as well. With cider, I'm imagining, you know, like a sharp cheddar, for example, just because you put that in my mind. Um, it's really good. And um, with wine, often the sort of the stinky, moldy cheeses with red wine, I love. So I think there's different there's different sort of categories. So those dry, sort of the dry Parmesan uh, um, or Italian style cheeses for me in beer is just like a perfect combination. But when I was in uh, Normandy, I, I also toured uh, a cidery uh, who's named after the cider maker, Cyril Zongs. And we had, he he opened his fridge to pull out a bottle of uh, cider, and it was just staggering, in, staggering intense from camembert. Mm. And he said, ah, it's camembert, which is made in, in Normandy, mm. uh, and which he was clearly eating regularly with his cider. So yeah. I think uh, that's. Yeah, I mean, especially the English, the, the English cider that you Lee served uh, me today is evocative of white wine and so i i can imagine also sort of like you know moldy cheeses as well for that or 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 very uh pungent soft cheeses yeah yeah so cheese and cider seems like a no-brainer that in fact you're making me very um hungry now yeah that's a good (laughs) call i'd love to have some cheese with this cider all right well we are running long again somehow we keep going long okay but before before we go away we have to we have to do one last trip which is you need to just uh set the table now for 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 cider in the new world exactly we have to talk we definitely have to talk about the united states because uh these are the ciders we'll be drinking most of of course so Um, we have we have three traditional ciders here three traditions we've talked about they're very different um in terms of uh, how they taste so what am i what 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 can i expect when i buy a cider here if you're if you're buying a craft cider Mm -hmm. you know we think of industrial beer and craft beer let's use that frame to to talk about these other these kind of ciders that are made locally and and wherever you happen to be not not the national supermarket ciders um in my book i i traveled around the 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 country and and talked to cider makers and tasted ciders and i came up with three categories of cider that i think are kind of descriptive of the different kind of ciders that are being made in the united states okay uh one is uh traditional cider Mm -hmm. so made in the manner of one of these three ciders that we just drank which is so kevin Solinsky is making traditional french cider french style cider um and there are not so many of these mostly it means natural fermentation uh and um uh it's usually made by orchardists at the farm and kind of a traditional process 
the second category that I, I described is I called them modernists. I don't know what you you know. I'm kind of just making this stuff up as I go along. But these are these are cider makers, and this is um, and we call it we call it coining the term coining. Ah, yes, thank you. You may now use this profligately and give me credit. Yeah. Uh, the the modernists approach uh, cider like winemaker American. Uh, winemakers approach wine and in many cases they actually learned from winemakers mm -hmm. so they're varietal picky uh, they will often ferment varieties uh, separately and do blending mm -hmm. and select their flavors very carefully whereas mm -hmm. the old orchardists just go out and harvest their their fruit they do what they call a, a, a field blend which is they make sure that it's got enough acid fruit and bittersweets just to be you right. know roughly in proportion to what they like, right. and then they don't they don't worry about the the, the varieties. In the United States, uh, there are cider makers who are really focused on particular varieties of apples, and they're they're growing them and they're blending them in proportion with other apples. Um, they're also really picky about the yeast strain, so they pitch pitch yeasts that create esters and uh, build flavor profiles that are consonant with the flavors of the fruit. Uh -huh. Um, and these are, I think, are, are more common on the East Coast than they are on the West Coast, the, okay. the uh, kind of what I call the modernists. Right. Um, there's a guy named Steve Wood who is at Farnham Hill, who was the guy that I talked to, uh, who I think exemplifies this in, in a strong way. And he was a really interesting guy, and um, he's the godfather of American cider making. Mm. Um, so if you read the book, he's a really cool guy. And he's, as a writer, the kind of guy that I love to write about because he's... Uh, Big personality and right. had a lot, lot the wonderful quote machine. Right. Exactly. <laughs> the last one will be more familiar to the uh, to the people in the United uh, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I call them the experimentalists, mm -hmm. and these are people who are working with uh, um, fruit that is grown for the table that is not doesn't have the complexity that we're looking for right. for for cider fruit, and so they'll do things like add hops, uh, add other fruit. Mm -hmm. They'll use exotic yeast strains. Um, they mm -hmm. will push and pull and tweak and do everything they can to get flavor in a cider. In complexity. Yeah, in complexity. Um, through natural means, not through the kind of industrial approach that right. we saw the, the, the big guys do, but use other flavors. It kind of, uh, you know, I think they borrow more heavily. The experimentalists probably look more to uh, the beer world, whereas the modernists are looking more to the wine world. Right. Interesting. So um, we had a couple of quotes. I just wanted to give you a sense of how Americans thought about it. Uh, the first one is from Kevin Zielinski, and these are just kind of three quotes that I pulled together in a, in a run. So you can see how he thinks about cider. It's a very traditional, he has sort of a, a traditional approach to thinking about it. It's a farm-based approach. He talks like an orchardist. Um, and in this quote, when he starts out talking, uh, he's talking about the nat the process of natural fermentation. That's what that that is, and then it just kind of leads into what he's saying. There. Right. And Kevin Zelinsky's cidery is called Easy Orchards, and he's down in Salem, and he is w widely regarded as one of the most important cider makers in the United States, not just in Oregon, but um, across the country. He is really, really people think he's the bee's knees, and I agree. Okay. So let's listen to Kevin. Because, and I hear cider makers, I hear beer makers, I hear wine makers talk about what they're going to do with this yeast, how it creates another character. Right. So I can say, well, I know there are other things happening, but I haven't manipulated that. Right. So I'm, this is still, I think, truer to what the fruit itself would do than um, 
than if I'd used, an, you know, purified it with SO2 and then did it, made a yeast inoculation. Yeah, that my philosophy is very much that. I mean, if I'm making cider from fruit, let's let the fruit be the, um, the factor that has the greatest influence. That doesn't mean I can't take care of it. That doesn't mean I can't use proper practices and sanitation. It means I have to be diligent about what I do. I mean, I'm an orchardist, so I know I plant trees and I wait. You take care of them and you wait. So it didn't upset me to think that, well, I may not sell my product until a year after it comes off the tree. Right. It's just the way it goes. Yeah. It's not a big deal. If it's what I want to make, it's better off than doing something else. Here Kevin is, is pointing to what I think is probably the future of American cider making. Uh, it's the sense of place and terroir. Mm -hmm. uh, and as an orchardist, uh, he planted his cider apples in the year 2000 so they've become mature and he's had a chance to begin to make uh, cider out of the fruit that he wants to make uh, right. cider out of many of the cider makers now are having to source apples from yeah i mean my impression of a lot of these new cideries are that they're not tied to an orchard that's right so in that case they're they're buying apples they're buying uh often they're buying uh juice you can actually mm -hmm. uh, here in oregon uh it's easy to buy juice by the truckload from uh, uh hood river uh -huh. you can also have it come down from yakima right but in both cases we're talking about um eating apples so you know these are right these are uh, the kind of apple juice you'd find in your refrigerator yeah fuji's and red delicious and that kind of stuff right. there those are the those are the apple juices they have available right and a lot of people really disparage this kind of fruit and say that we can't uh, we will not be a cider making country until we start planting French and English cider apples and maybe even Basque cider apples mm -hmm. uh, and, and you know, get caught up. And that's how I was thinking about it, too, until I talked to uh, Nat West, who is uh, Reverend Nat uh, here in Portland. And he is uh, what I would call an experimentalist. Mm -hmm. He is uh, actually he is the poster boy for experimentalism. He will try anything. He makes some weird, crazy ciders <laughs> i mean he even does this thing that he worked with barley brown to make it he boiled a cider so he could add a hops in the uh, uh boiling process and extract bitterness because he was really frustrated that he couldn't get any bitterness into his uh right into his cider so he is he'll try anything um how did that go by the way uh it was a real uh love it or hate it thing yeah and i know a lot of people who loved it i was not uh, i was I, I was not in the love it camp and right. i'll leave it there yeah um i think reverend Ed is the most uh interesting and talented of the new cider makers and he's also one of the most thoughtful and he really he he changed the way i thought about cider and he changed the way this book was written because of what he told me which and i have this quote um he made an argument for a different kind of terroir which was actually hard to refute. So let's listen to him talk about that. So one of our unofficial company models is making good cider out of bad apples. Not, not bad apples like the bad apple, like literally bad apples. They're not good apples. They're, yeah, yeah. They don't have a lot of redeeming qualities, but they're so cheap, they're so plentiful, and they're local. You can't argue with that. So, so I think that mentality of use what you got um, defines the taste that comes out. If I just made... Well, Cascadia, the blue can, that is as northwest as you can get. Anthem is as northwest as you can get. Um, there's no other added flavors to it. It's just all northwest ingredients, all Washington apples. I mean, I use Y yeast yeast, for Christ's sakes. It's all here. Right. Um, and if you have different varieties, of, like in Virginia, they don't grow pink ladies. They grow 
you can get Newtown Pippin until the cows come home. So mm-hmm. you go to Virginia Cideries, and I did this year, and I visited like five cideries, and everyone was really excited about their Newtown Pippin, you know, our Newtown Pippin, and our Newtown Pippin, and our Newtown Pippin. And they all taste exactly the same because they're all grown in the exact same climate, and <laughs> they treat them all the same. So that's Virginia cider, you know. Um, we don't. We can grow bittersweet apples here. We make cider with bittersweet apples, but do we need to? Is that who says that's better? That that's desirable? Even you've got great apples here. It's still called cider. I love this quote because, in many ways, it's the same philosophy that the orchardists use, mm-hmm. which is to say, this is a product of the earth. This is a. This is a. Uh, it's not a manufactured thing. It is a. It is a thing that comes from the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you know, the, when we tasted these these three ciders from different parts of the world, they tasted different because they were produced by by different orchardists in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nat makes a really compelling case that there's 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 a, It's 100% subjective to say, uh, you know, that 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 Basque apples are somehow better than. Uh, our apples, or that there would be better than Norman apples or or, or English apples, um, and he, I think, points a direction to experimentation with what we have growing here now, mm-hmm. uh, and thinking of those as good, honest ciders and not as a compromise. Yeah, and uh, and I think that um, there's something really credible about that, and I I'm excited to see people like Abram uh, Goldman Armstrong, who also makes really exceptional ciders out of what Nat would call bad fruit uh, and what Nat makes. I, I think what they're doing is some of the most interesting stuff and will guide the way. I think there will be more and more people making ciders like Kevin Zielinski. Mm-hmm. But when America develops its idiom, it's our, uh, a vocabulary, it's not going to be uh, ciders that look exactly like French or English or Spanish ciders. It's going to be American cider and it's going to be people like Nat West, who figure out what that looks and tastes like. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I, I buy it to an extent. Um, what I think, sort of, as an economist, maybe I would think this is that I imagine that um, if cider maintains and continues to grow like uh, it has and becomes a real fixture, then there will be this endogenous process mm-hmm. of uh, apples um, beginning to be grown to serve those cideries, and that those apples will be sort of partly determined by local tastes and they will also partly inform local tastes. So it's kind of similar to craft beer in that sense. Um, So I think that that's, um, I I guess what I would say is I don't buy a hundred percent that, well, you know, the market over the last 50 years was for eating apples and these are the eating apples that we grew here and they're good. And so that's now what our cider is going to be. Actually, I think our cider is going to sort of determine that. Um, just a kind of a, a little anecdote, but I wonder how much this anecdote is um, common. As you well know, you convinced my mother, who was thinking of uh, planting apple trees, yes. to actually plant an orchard full of cider apples. And so she went out and um, actually, based on your recommendations, uh, found a number of different varieties. And she went out and talked to local cideries first and said, look, I'm interested in having an orchard. She had property, but I'm saying in the past tense because she just recently sold it. She decided it was too much to maintain, but she did get her orchard in before she left. Uh, So the orchard is there, but she went to local cideries and said, look, I'm, you know, I have this extra land and I want to, I want an orchard. And so what kinds of apples uh, would you be interested in? Would you use my apples? And uh, so it was great. Um, it's, it's exactly sort of the process that I imagine might happen in the future if cider really continues to take off is that, these new uh, uh, apple, some of the 
old apple varieties, but they'll be informed by the the cider makers themselves, and they'll that will be informed by what people seem to like, and uh, so it could be a pretty exciting sort of um, iterative process of of new apples. It takes a while, I think, what maybe about five years between the time you plant a tree and actually fruits reasonable apples. Yeah, even longer than that for an orchard really to to get going. You can start getting apples that quickly, but um, for the tree to really start bearing properly yeah. and and um, and and mature apples are better than than new apples yeah. so those things all change so it'll take a while and so i guess the way that i would interpret nat's comment is is that this is sort of the the, the first step you take what's here you take what's what's available you create uh the best cider you can from it and from that you know you can grow this whole sort of organic industry yeah uh and you know cider in 20 years might look a lot different in the pacific northwest and it'd be interesting to see where it goes yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I, I'm I'm guessing that Nat would endorse uh, what you what you just said. It certainly makes sense to me, and I think that's right. It's a it's an organic fluid process mm -hmm. that there is no roadmap because it happens iteratively, like you said. Mm -hmm. There's a communication between drinker and and maker, and and then you end up someplace you probably couldn't map out. Yeah, yeah. Well, outstanding. All right. So the book is called Cider Made Simple. It's from Chronicle Books. It's out now. Get your copy. Um, learn everything you ever wanted to know about cider, and it'll all be simple. Um, by the way, we've been talking about uh, effervescence in cider, and all three glasses are sitting here uh, flat as a flitter. Even the one that had some effervescence has quickly dissipated within moments of pouring. <laughs> On the cover of Cider Made Simple, there's this beautiful pint glass <laughs> with this sort of uh, creamy head of a couple inches thick that sort of has looks looks almost like whipped cream on top so um, what gives jeff i would like to apologize to the cider drinking public i had nothing to do with that cover and i was appalled when i saw it i'm pretty sure that's a beer uh or or <laughs> or it's a staged thing by somebody who didn't realize that there were no side no heads on ciders and it's actually made with uh whipping cream or yeah it's very dark too now that you mentioned it relative to these ciders yeah it's, sort of, it's brown and it's got a big head and it doesn't look very much like cider does it no i think it's a it looks to me like a that would be extraordinary if they actually put a picture of beer on your on the cover of your i book. i know and it's funny because um the beer book they gave me three different covers and asked me to comment on all three and this one i did not see until i received that book that you hold <laughs> in your hand so. that's too funny they do have a slight uh, a half of an apple that's sitting next to the glass so in case you didn't quite Yes. Buy it. Well, there's the apple, you see. And Must thank, be cider. Thank God. Uh, I've already seen online people asking. Uh, there's threads devoted to trying to figure out what that is. <laughs> and, uh, well, you need, to, you, need to, you need to reveal the answer by, by uh, demanding it's true. answers I'll, from, your, from your publisher. No, but it, it, uh, but it actually, I mean, it's, it's a pretty co cover. If it was a beer, it would be great. And it's a great-looking uh, great book. Uh, so get your copy now. Well, thank you. I I, I agree with your plug wholeheartedly. <laughs> All right. So as always, this has been Jeff Allworth, author of the Beervana blog. Uh, you can find him at, uh, of course, the Beervana blog, the Beervana blog Facebook page. Um, and you can email uh, at um, the underscore beer axe at yahoo.com. And you are Patrick Emerson, and you blog at Beeronomics and tweet at at Beeronomics and can be found there. And uh, uh, Yeah, don't contact me. And don't contact Patrick. <laughs> contact, con contact me. Contact, actually, the best way to get in touch, of course, is the, the Beer Vana blog Facebook page right. uh, where we'd love to hear your comments and questions. So uh, until next time, uh, let's see which one. I'm going to take this um, uh, French one here. I'm going to go for the Assistegi. All right. Well, uh, cheers, Jeff. Salute.
wasn't horrible.